Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Right, it is time to talk about money, but very specifically cash money and very specifically coin cash money and very specifically the difficulty of obtaining the same. Uh, because there is, as I, you might have heard me say before the news, it's not exactly a coin shortage because, you know, we basically have as many coins as we usually have. It's just that they're not where they're supposed to be. They're not where people who need to use them can use them. So maybe that counts as a shortage. I'm not 100% sure. However, there are people who know better than I do. Uh, and as we go along here, you're going to meet a, a bunch of them. Uh, and we're going to start. I should say that a little bit later in the show, because we, we never stay in one direction for very long, we're going to continue to talk about coins, but we'll talk about them differently. We're going to later in the show, you'll hear uh, a lot about how coins were used uh, in uh, the Roman Empire, in the Greek democracy. Uh, and then lastly, we'll tell you kind of a happy story about an aquarium that was strapped for cash and then realized they hadn't cleaned out their wishing well for 14 years. Uh, all right, so, but right now, yes, it's the national coin shortage. Uh, in a few minutes, uh, you are going to hear uh, from Brian Wallace, the president and CEO of the Coin Laundry Association of America. But we're going to begin with Molly Olmsted, a staff writer at Slate com one of the journalists who tackled this question uh, so first of all Molly welcome to the show thank you it's great to be here uh, and so um, how did we get in this position it has something to do with the pandemic the way everything uh, including the pepperoni shortage has something to do with the pandemic yeah I mean I will say I assumed that there were going to be some other elements going on here, but it turned out that it pretty much is 100% to do with the pandemic. Um, there are a few things that caused it. Sort of one of the most obvious ones is the the mint itself, which produces these coins physically, uh, where they were limited because of the, uh, you know, because of safety measures. So they were partially shut down. People were at home. It, they just like physically could not produce enough coins. But there were a little bit more sort of complicated reasons that had to do with the economy that led to this, you know, they're calling uh, experts I talked to called it a coin disruption um, because there are plenty of coins out there, um, but they're stuck inside homes. People weren't going out. People weren't going to coffee shops where you would maybe get that higher circulation they weren't going. Um, they weren't going to these little grocery store kiosks where you could trade it in. I mean, they would still go to grocery stores, but maybe not linger. Uh, you had storefronts that were shut down, so they kind of had their coin um, piles just sort of hidden behind there. And then um, you had people who just like, even though banks are essential businesses, didn't didn't really want to go. And meanwhile, people are 
online shopping more than ever before. They're paying with credit cards more than ever before, possibly in part because they're afraid of the germs. And granted, we don't think that there's too much of a risk uh, when it comes to, you know, actually catching COVID from coins. But, uh, you know, you do have to get sometimes a little bit closer to someone and people are just anxious. So a lot of just online shopping, credit cards, not uh, not using your coins and leaving them at home. And that was fine and dandy until um, these banks that usually will send back their deposit excess to the Federal Reserve were just sending back fewer coins. And then as the economy started to open up, as people started to uh, you know get back out in the world a little bit more during the pandemic, they, the banks wanted those coins back again. They, they, they wanted to order them from the Federal Reserve. And the Federal Reserve just didn't have that many stockpiled. So they, they just didn't have enough to send to them. Right. So, you know, meanwhile, and I think sort of somewhere in what you just said, too, is that idea that, for example, I am not a millennial. In fact, <laughs> I'm a long way from being a millennial, uh, but I almost signed up for Venmo in the middle of all this because uh, I thought, well, that's one more way to be contactless. And increasingly, there's like farm stands and farmers markets that will take Venmo. And that sort of gets me out of exactly the kind of thing that um, that you're talking about right now, where you've got to like hand something to somebody and hand something back and all this kind of stuff. And by the way, the only way, the reason I didn't did it, do it is as I got a little deeper into it, I thought, you know, this is just another company that's going to have my data and share it with somebody. God knows who I'm not. I just thought, you know, why do I have to do one more thing like that? But it does raise the question, since a lot of people do things like Venmo, a lot of people are increasingly cashless. Who uses coins enough to miss them? Uh, and for the answer to that, let's bring into the conversation Brian Wallace, president and chief executive officer at the Coin Laundry Association. Brian Wallace, welcome to the conversation. Thanks so much for having me. So um, just for starters, um, one thing, one group of people who get left out of a lot of conversations uh, are the so-called unbanked. Uh, that's, I think, 8 million American households, people who, for one reason or another, you know, don't don't have uh, the kind of bank accounts that would lead to the kinds of cards that can substitute themselves you know, easily for cash. And, and a lot of those people are also the, the customers of the people in your association. Maybe you can talk uh, about how that's showing up there. Absolutely. Yeah, we, our customer base is comprised of folks that either can't afford a washer dryer or don't have easy access to a washer dryer. And so there's absolutely, absolutely an overlap with the unbanked or underbanked uh, households in our country. So uh, while our industry has been adopting some of the new, I won't say Venmo, but certainly some of the new technologies to take cards or mobile payments at the washer and dryer, uh, the overwhelming majority of our facilities still take quarters. And we serve a lot of households who only have cash to spend. And so as this pandemic unfolded, uh, we had a lot on our plate as an industry providing a basic public health service, one that uh, was deemed essential uh, and we've kept uh, providing that service but the last thing we expected was to run out of the denomination of coin that we need to activate uh, the washers and dryers and about 89 percent of the laundromats in the u.s so it's most certainly been disruptive to our mom and pop business owners who are trying to take care of the neighborhood you know uh, brian i don't want to say that i'm a hero or that i want to be part of the solution 
but I actually used 12 quarters this week in a gas station uh, vacuum cleaner. Um, so I feel like I, you know, I am part of the solution. Um, but you, um, I don't know, I realize that it'll take a while before it gets over to you, but um, the, um, you actually probably know a number. What percentage of people who use the laundromats in your association do use quarters as opposed to some kind of card? Absolutely. So uh, according to our most recent survey, uh, about 56% of the 30,000 laundromats in the U.S. Uh, have quarters as the only form of payment. About 89% take quarters along with uh, other, you know, again, like a card or a mobile payment system and sort of the modernization that's happening. So when uh, when we have trouble getting quarters, so it, it really does disrupt the business. And if we can't uh, provide quarters to customers, uh, or, and if they can't bring them from home, uh, they can't get the laundry clean and we can't make money and, and try to keep the businesses afloat. You know, so we really started to notice this a few months back when all of a sudden laundromats that would typically have an excess of quarters at the end of the collection cycle at the end of the week uh, found themselves short of, of quarters. And those laundromats that were typically short of quarters and had to buy quarters from the bank at the end of the week uh, found their bank telling them, hey, I can only give you uh, $100 worth uh, or $50 worth. And so uh, we've had to get creative, as all small business owners do when, when things go sideways. And so we're trying to monitor the coin changer in the laundromat, make sure it's only for customers. Uh, we're trying to uh, perhaps collect uh, the quarters from the washers and dryers more frequently to sort of recycle uh, that stock uh, more aggressively. We're reaching out to friends and family on Facebook saying, bring your coin jar down to the laundromat on Saturday and we'll turn it into cash. Just really anything we can think of to make sure that we can keep providing this basic service. Um, so, um, Molly, a couple of things about what Brian is saying. Well, one thing is uh, the reason that the banks uh, are rationing them is that the Fed is rationing rationing them, right? The the banks are in the same position. They can't get as many coins as they want. Yeah, so the Fed rationing is, is a little bit of a response to this uh, coin shortage. It's something that they stepped up um, sort of they they had this u.s coin task force that was established in the middle of june or late june um they came up with recommendations and part of it is they they, they realized that they had to sort of hold some back um from these bank orders and so they are hoping that as they produce more and more and it gets out there things will level out a bit but in the meantime one of the main things they're doing to try and mitigate the shortage is just asking banks to just order the minimum amount that they absolutely need and then just not sending them as much because they just actually cannot. Um, so, I mean, I know that's a little bit circular, but it, it is one of the main ways that they're doing it as they ratchet up uh, like dramatically the amount of coins they're producing. I feel like the U.S. Coin Task Force, they need some kind of like animated coin character that can do public service announcements coiny or something you know who can say you know my friends and i we're in short supply right now here's what you can do this is probably why i'm not asked to be on the u.s coin task force so um so molly this also this is not well let's let's go in one more place which is so we know at the beginning of the pandemic the fed just couldn't make as many coins for a while but now are they making more coins are they making a lot of coins to kind of make up the, for the deficit? Yeah, so I 
think that um, if I have my numbers right, it's about 1.65 billion coins per, per month. Um, the Mint, they're, they're working with the Mint. I don't know exactly what that means to get them just sort of highly operational, but they are. Um, usually that's, we do 1 billion in coins a month. So that's a pretty big difference. Um, it's, I mean, there's just, the, the issue with the Fed though, is that, you know, they can, they can produce a bunch, but it just, it, there's a limitation to how fast it can trickle out into the economy. So the Fed, you know, they can very quickly put a halt on it. So if there's too many coins, they could just, you know, hold them back and that would be no problem. But it just takes time when you need to get it out in the economy. Why don't they just call it Operation Warp Speed and make coins really fast? I withdraw that question. Um, so it's, it sounds like from what she's saying, Brian, what Molly Olmsted is saying, that this is not something that's going to abate uh, very fast. So, you know, um, once again, out there kind of on, on the front lines where you guys are, does that mean you've got to even do more adaptations? Do you maybe move towards even for the unbanked co- uh, population? I don't know. Like I used to live in an apartment building where we had machines and there was sort of a card you could load up. It was like called Mm -hmm. Mac or something. Uh, Are there things like that that can, you know, if the quarters just don't come back fast enough, other stuff you can try? That's certainly a solution that that a lot of our our business owners have been already adapting in recent years, just based on the kind of the overriding consumer trends. Uh, to a certain degree away from cash. Uh, but you know, you can imagine that sort of retooling or re-equipping a laundromat uh, is both time consuming and certainly a major capital expense for a mom and pop. So while many have been able to bring on these additional, we call alternative payment systems, it's, it's still uh, not something where you can, uh, forgive me, turn on a dime and make that change in your laundromat. So I think that it's going to take uh, some time for this to resolve itself. Uh, uh, like Molly, I've been in touch with the task force and have been trying to, you know, sort of advocate for our members in that process. And it really boils down to until retail transactions rebound, until we all get back in the habit of redeeming that coin jar, either in the bank lobby or the grocery kiosk, it's going to be difficult. Yeah, I mean, if you're listening right now and you're going to go to Stop and Shop anyway, just bring those coins to Coinstar, and you actually will be making a difference. You'll actually be doing something for somebody. And I know that these these days it's hard to feel like you are uh, making a difference. So uh, Molly Olmstead, you know, there's one, there's coins and there are coins. Uh, Brian just artfully invoked the dime, uh, but the penny. The pennies, it was a problem before all of this started, right? It costs more to make a penny than a penny is worth. Yeah, it costs about two cents to make a penny, which is uh, double, obviously. And not a good a not a good business model right away. No, not great. <laughs> so take it from there. Say- yeah, go ahead. So um, so there has been there have been conversations for a long time about whether we just whether we just need to change the way we think about this and just round everything to a nickel. Yeah. I mean, the penny debate has been around seemingly forever. I think in part, uh, this is because it is, I mean, people love to talk about the penny debate because it is such a non-controversial topic. Uh, It's like a fun little one you can just sort of trot out uh, if you want like high schoolers to write an essay on something. Um, And I think pretty much most people agree that the penny is, has long outlived its usefulness but people do have an emotional attachment to it, I would say. Uh, 
And the general argument is that, you know, we would just round to the nearest nickel, which if you think about it for a second, is not that that uh, wild a proposition. And it's something that's already, you know, a lot of places are having to do right now with this coin shortage. It's just round it on up or round it on down. And people don't tend to find that too weird. Yeah. I, and I also think that people uh, have already sort of uh, changed their attitude. I mean, one of the problems, one of the reasons we're having, I think, a coin shortage right now is because a lot of coins, like when I think back to pre-pandemic, yeah, maybe I'd go into a coffee place and get a latte and it would be 465 or something. And I would just say, well, you know, throw the, you know, throw the coins into the tip jar or wherever. Actually, that's not a very good tip, is it? But, um, you know, I mean, there's sort of a lot of that. Increasingly, we see the coins as things we don't even really want to have handed to us. This was even pre-pandemic. Uh, but the problem is, you know, when we start do, stop doing those cash transactions, uh, th then that never ha has an opportunity to happen. There isn't that sort of natural flow of the coins anywhere. And Molly, it does seem like in the case of the penny, well, you know, I mean, just to go back to my incredibly heroic behavior this week in which I vacuumed out two cars uh, using quarters to run the uh, the gas station vacuum cleaner. One thing I encountered a lot on the floor of these two cars were pennies, you know, and it's like you don't even really know what to do with them. Like, I, like I don't want them. You know? <laughs> Seems wrong to let them go up the snout of the vacuum cleaner. I mean, there's sort of a way in which pennies have become almost litter, right? Yeah. I mean, literally pl plenty of pennies are thrown away every year. Just people just throw them away. This is, uh, I mean, this is why some people think it's absurd that we're producing them in such a high rate when people clearly see no value in them. But there, I mean, there are obviously people maybe who, um, you know, are making, you know, less than $25,000 a year who wouldn't be so eager to just toss them. But I think, uh, you know, a lot of people think might as well just throw it in that tip jar or just, I mean, it's an easy donation for sure. Right. All right. So we're going to stop there. Yeah, I would say uh, that's uh, it, the the subtext of this entire conversation is there are a lot of people who are living a life that's different from the maybe the lives that we live and think of as everybody's lives. And that does include uh, people who don't make a lot of money um, and uh, people who make less than twenty five thousand dollars are very, very likely to be unbanked. Uh, and yeah, you know, in terms of what a penny's worth, I don't know. I see people uh, still. Uh, in any city, I see people with big, huge black plastic bags where they're collecting all the redeemable bottles that people are just tossing aside. And uh, they've definitely realized that to, for them, there's a way in which it is worth it. So uh, we're going to stop there uh, and switch gears and uh, thank Molly Olmstead and uh, Brian Wallace, uh, our guests on this segment. And we'll just quickly add, there's sort of a way in which, you know, we're living in a moment, a historical moment where these kinds of things, these kind of basic things that seem to be part of the physical fabric of society are challenged in a weird that in a way that kind of strikes uh, at our own ex existential cores. Uh, I should tell you that tomorrow uh, in a somewhat novel move we are instead of talking about a new movie on our friday show the nose we all watched the 1997 uh, kevin costner vehicle the postman which is about kind of the death of society and the way in which a uh, recrudescence of the u.s mail service turns out to be the key to the restoration of civilization uh and 
you know, I mean, between mail and coins and like all this stuff that kind of a functioning society has and does, you know, and, and I mean, these have been parts of functioning societies going back centuries and centuries, as you'll see in the case of coins, many centuries. So the fact that we can't do this basic stuff right now, or, or can't do it as well as a functioning society would, it, it is, there's something a little unsettling. And, the, and there's a way in which it all seems to be kind of linked together too. Anyway, uh, we're going to talk about how long coins have been around and how interesting and beautiful they can be. Uh, so here we go. Once I built a railroad, made it run, made it race against time. Once I built a railroad, now it's done. Brother, can you spare a dime? Once I built a tower to the sun. Okay, uh, we are back, uh, and and yeah, so as I suggested, we uh, are going to talk now about a time when coins were pretty much what there were, uh, and uh, and they were there usually in abundance, I think. Uh, David Veggie uh, joins us, Director of Ancient Coins at the Numismatic Guarantee Corporation and the author of Coinage and History of the Roman Empire. Uh, so, David, uh, welcome to our show. Great. It's good to be here. So first of all, uh, let's just set up the category a little bit. When we talk about ancient coins and, uh, and coinages, uh, what's our period? What kind of thing are we talking about? Well, it's it's the right place to start because it's a, it's a very broad subject in a sense. Um, you look at our nation, we've been around a touch more than a couple of centuries. And if you look at the, the period we're describing with ancient coins, you're talking from about 650 BC to about 500 AD. So well over a thousand years. And it covers literally everywhere from Britain to India and from North Africa to Germany. Uh, so you have just an enormous number of cultures, uh, so many different civilizations, um, and each of them approach coinage slightly differently. And to this, you know, thousand plus years, of classical coinage, uh, we can add the Byzantine Empire, which carried on for another thousand years after after Rome fell to the German mercenaries. Right. Those are the coins where you start seeing in hoc signo vincus, right? Things like that. Uh, in, in the late Roman period, you start seeing that. Absolutely. So, um, so yeah, I mean, you say that they're all used differently and the, it's, there, there are a lot of differences from culture to culture. I would assume there are also some commonalities. I mean, including... You know, you could cram a lot of information onto a coin and, and or a lot of messages onto a coin. And I assume most of those civilizations did. I mean, you know, uh, Athens has a big win in the Persian War. So they put out an Athena coin and it's got an owl. But the owl's holding an olive branch because they want to il illustrate that, yeah, they just won a big war. But we're also all about peace and prosperity. I, I assume there's a lot of that signifying that goes on uh, culture to culture in coins. Yes, there, you know, in an age without the internet and uh, without newspapers, you know, coins were, you know, broadly circulating and they were one of the principal tools that governments and, uh, you know, authorities of all kind had to, you know, disseminate and express messages. So you do find that, uh, you know, it wasn't a, an afterthought as to what they put on their coins. It was a serious decision. And some civilizations were more 
uh, were more oblique. Uh, others were quite direct, like the Romans, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, but invariably, uh, these designs all reveal something about the people who issued them. So we should um, we should uh, sorry that's a phone in my in my house going off. So um, we should uh, establish some terms here. Uh, usually with coins, I think you talk about obverse and reverse. Obverse is usually uh, well with a Roman coin, you're probably going to have an emperor at least during one long period, and then the reverse can be a lot of different things, and and I'm sure even more different things culture to culture. So what kinds of things do cultures put on the reverse of coins? Well, typically most, uh, most okay, obverse is obviously what we might consider heads and reverse is tails. Yeah. Um, and, you know, quite often ancient coins don't have a head on the obverse. A lot of them do, right? But, you know, there's a whole uh, array of designs. But the reverses, uh, let's say on coins of the Roman Empire, where you typically had the emperor's head or, or his, uh, his uh, wife's head or his uh, heir's head, um, that would be on the obverse, and then the reverse. You can literally have thousands of different designs, and as the you know, for lack of a better term, uh, propaganda needs of of the empire changed, they would shift message, and they would put something completely different on it. And this is one of the really interesting aspects of Roman coins. Uh, the Roman the Romans really perfected this. There's no question, uh, but they used it absolute uh, absolutely to, to to maximum impact can, can you give like an example of the kind of transition you're talking about the sort of shift in message sure like uh for example let's say for example there was uh you know, a timely idea a plague of some kind because there you know this did affect the ancient world on occasion uh there would be a shift to uh messaging uh, to talk about gods and goddesses who uh, had something to do with good health or the promotion of health, and you would find, for example, those top th- those deities might appear more frequently if there was a recent victory in a far-flung uh, province or against a foreign enemy. You know, these kinds of things would be promoted on the coinage. Uh, if there was a new heir to the throne that was born, sometimes that would be promoted on coinage as well. So really, uh, it's almost like the... Uh, you know, functions in some ways like a newspaper with with current events of the day. But but this is principally with coins of the Roman Empire. Uh, when you get to Greek coins or Etruscan coins or Celtic coins, uh, you get more of an approach that is um, more cultural and, and certainly less topical. Well, I'm also thinking with Greek coins, that I mean, one thing about Rome is it was a big old empire, you know? um, right? And yet with Greek coins, and you have nation states, uh, and I, you know, I mean, I'm assuming there's just a tremendous uh, amount of variety and different possibilities with so many nation states. Who I assume, rather than having a coinage that could be traded in, interstate, so to speak, uh, I assume they had their own coinages. Well, they definitely had their own coinages. Now, this is principally up to the period, uh, up to about Alexander the Great, uh, who made made uh, great inroads in uh, solidifying things and, and uh, spawning empires. So, 
you know, there's sort of a before and an after. And that's not to say that individual city states didn't regain independence at various times and issue their own coins after Alexander's time, but it was certainly less common. Uh, but in the period where you have these independent city states, it was very much in their interest to promote uh, their, for lack of a better word, their nationhood by having coins which bore symbols that people recognized as something associated with their city. It may be a particular deity that they uh, worshipped. It may be a design that was specific to their to their culture and their area. But theoretically, all of these coins, people would be able to recognize instantly where they came from, even if they couldn't read the Greek inscriptions on them, you know, in, in the event that they had them. We should say, speaking of Alexander, that um, at least going up to the time of Philip, Macedon uh, had its own Macedonian coinage system. And the only reason I know that, David, is that I started really geeking out about this today and I started getting on these various numismatics message boards uh, right. and there's like people just talking about all kinds of stuff. And that's really interesting too. the mentality of these collectors there, at least the, in the uh, I may not have read a totally representative sampling, but, you know, rather than sort of geeking out about the coin, these people are almost unvaryingly history buffs. They're the kind of people who will read Suetonius's History of Twelve Emperors and think, oh, well, I should get each a coin for each one of those emperors because this is such an interesting thing. Uh, I, I was, I mean, with the Macedonian coin collectors, I was amazed how much they sort of knew about Macedonian politics and foreign uh, alliances and stuff like that. Oh, yeah. It's, it, it's really... Uh... I think the way to think about ancient coins is that if you think of it as an object, just, you know, not, not even just a coin, but an artifact. So, so this is a remnant of a lost civilization, it just happens to be a coin. Um, and from that single object, you can learn about almost, it, it leads you in all sorts of directions to learn about politics, history, military, uh, religion, you know, you name it. it, it there are so many strings that can, uh, you know, shoot out from it that leads you in all these different directions of learning. And it's actually rather contagious because you end up following these threads and, and learning all of these things about civilizations. And, you know, it, it all really traces back to a coin. And, and this is a very common experience with collectors. It's also, I guess, the case maybe especially with the Greek coins, that where they were minted is not necessarily where they were used as coinage. You could be looking at a, at a Greek coin that was minted in what is now Ukraine or something, right? Absolutely. In fact, uh, there's a, a very useful distinction to make here. Um, the larger silver coins and the gold coins were principally uh, struck for trade. And that by by that, I mean what account, what amounted to international trade back in the ancient world. Um, now, small coins, small silver coins, silver fractions, uh, you know, copper coins, those were principally for local circulation, and they tended to circulate at a premium over cost of production. So you might have a little tiny bronze coin, and it, it circulated at higher value than, than maybe the, the, the metal itself was worth. We should and also say that- to stay local, the yeah. We should also mm -hmm. say that a lot of them didn't have um, denomination values on them, right? You knew what Correct. they were worth by the weight and the material. Yeah, in fact, I would say, honestly, the vast, vast majority, 99% plus of ancient coins do not have a denomination on them at all. 
it, it's actually unusual for them to have the denomination stated and up until you get into the Byzantine Empire. So we should also talk about the historical uses of these coins. So, I mean, Mary Beard, the kind of, you know, uh, Roman historian of all Roman historians, I think she's got a whole chapter of SPQR that's about coins. And and so obviously you're going to be interested in the reverse or tales of the coin. Where's, where's the message there? But also in these depictions uh, of emperors and emperors' wives and emperors' daughters and just, you know, I mean, I was looking at a Commodus coin today. It doesn't look like Joaquin Phoenix. It looks like way better. So, <laughs> exactly. um, so yeah, we'll talk a little bit about that, about sort of, you know, what historians can learn and try to figure out from these coins. Oh, that's a, that's a huge topic. It's wonderful. Basically, so for, for this, you really need to go back to the Renaissance when, when uh, ancient coins started to be discovered in quantity because there were lots of excavations occurring in Italy uh, where they're trying to drain swamps. There, there are a lot of building projects. And as they're digging, they're finding all sorts of ancient coins. And meanwhile, for a thousand plus years, the only coins anyone has been familiar with in Europe are flat, thin, uh, you know, uninspiring designs, very, uh, very easy coins to produce because there, there's no technical challenge to them. Meanwhile, uh, people are discovering not only inscriptions and columns and statues, but they're discovering tens, if not hundreds of thousands of ancient coins. And they're in such high relief and, and the artistry on them can be so fine that it, it, it kind of blew their minds. And in a sense, coins were literally the most poignant spark of, uh, of, of the Renaissance in Europe. So these were things that, because when people were digging them up, and this is all recorded in, uh, you know, in documents of the day, uh, people just could not wrap their head around the idea that these things could actually be manufactured. In other words, the technologies, the, the artistic accomplishment, all of it was, was really beyond the realm of what anyone knew and understood. Um, you know, some of the mechanical arts still still had been retained, but but these really finer approaches had been lost over the centuries. So as they're looking at these things, they're they're just blown away. They don't understand it. And initially, as they find the first probably few hundred, they're thinking, okay, these are one-offs, they're cast. You know, they're they're really special things. Then they start finding them by the tens of thousands and realize, no. These were very, very common items, and and they could actually make them like this, and and this really got minds moving in a direction that we really need to recover everything that we've lost. They they must have just felt like they were starting from scratch. Right. We should also say that another value of these coins is uh, an ancient building that's either gone or in total ruins might be represented on a coin. You can actually, you know, get a sense of what it looked like. And certainly there's been a lot of use of those coins, even though they are idealized depictions of leaders. Right. Uh, there's been a lot of use of those coins to match up with marble busts where you're not 100 oh. percent sure who it's a bust of. Right. Right. In fact, you're 100 percent, 100 percent dead on. In fact, I will go so far to say that absolutely all marble busts, with the very rare exception, maybe one in a thousand of them, where the inscription, you know, an identifying inscription uh, accompanies the bust, all the rest of them, 
uh, archaeologists and uh, you know art historians were starting completely from scratch. They rely entirely on ancient coins because the great thing about them, typically when they have a portrait, they have an inscription that identifies the subject of the portrait. And so it is really the ancient coin that is used as the tool, the core tool for assigning identifications to a whole host of um, of marble busts, and and not just in terms of exactly who it is, but if it's if it's not if it's an anonymous portrait, may, maybe not of an emperor, but just a person, they based on the style of the portrait, they can narrow it down to a period based on coins which are eminently datable, unlike so many other objects. So coins are really in their in the ancient world are really in their own category. They're in, in my mind they are. You know, aside for some from some, you know, really important literary works, they are absolutely uh, the core uh, the, the the core value for trying to reconstruct history. That and you know, inscriptions when they come along when they come around. So, last area that we'll have time to get into. So, um, one reason I was looking at a Commodus coin today is because I have somebody in my life who has a birthday coming up who would really enjoy, you know, really get a kick out of getting a, you know, an actual coin stamped out in the uh, era of Commodus. And it was on Etsy and it was 80 bucks, which is not nothing, but it's not like I'm <laughs> trying to buy the right. Elgin mar marbles or something. I was surprised at the fact that these, these things aren't priced out of reach uh, in a lot of cases. No, you're, you're, uh, you hit it. Uh, this, this is, this is a hobby. First of all, this is a hobby that's, you know, five or 600 years old. Okay. It's really the king of hobbies. Um, and people were obsessed with it then, and they really love it now too. Uh, now, as far as the price point, you can get an ancient coin from anywhere from about $2 to $2 million. And you just pick your price point and, and there is going to be something there because you know, we factoring in rarity and popularity and condition and what metal it's made of, you know, you, you can just you can literally get a full range of, of opportunities in the field. Right. No, I mean, it. Uh, I have to say, as, as I think is becoming clear, uh, I felt very at home <laughs> on the message boards today and looking at coins on right. on Etsy and other places and stuff like that. So uh, uh, I do think, well, we should say also that, yes, you know, there are all different kinds of coins here. But I mean, I guess what attracts certain collectors too. I talked about people who might become interested in, say, Macedonian history or read Suetonius or something like that. But, but people often, you know, it's something that's depicted there, right? It's not necessarily... I don't know, just some grubby interest in the value of the coin. It's usually a, 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 maybe even something from the Bible, right? Yeah. There, so in other words, uh, in, initially, uh, people are attracted just because they're old, and, and they really can't believe these things exist. Literally, million, many, many millions of these exist above ground. I mean, tens of millions. So they, they are available, and they, but people are initially attracted to them because of their age. And, and just the curiosity of, of my gosh, I can actually handle this thing. Um, and, and there's a, a built-in assumption, obviously, that the older coins are going to be worth more. But, you know, as people get involved in the hobby, you know, they quickly discover that uh, age is, is not really much of a uh, catalyst for uh, spurring value. Mm. You know, some of the very earliest coins are not terribly expensive, and some of the latest ones in the series, close to 500 AD, are, are, are quite expensive.
All right. We have to stop there, uh, but uh, it is a fascinating conversation. At least uh, I'm finding it very fascinating. Uh, and I'll probably five years from now, we'll have spent all my money on coins. But David Veggie, uh, <laughs> Director of Ancient Coins at the Numismatic Guarantee Corporation. It will be partly your fault if that happens. Uh, the author of Coinage and History of the Roman Empire. Don't worry. We're usually pretty good at making everything Betsy Kaplan's fault because she's so easy to convince about that. Uh, we are going to take a break. We'll come back. I'm a president, you don't remember getting kicked around. I'm a I'm fine. And I shine. I'm freshly minted. All right. Before we go further, uh, there are uh, people to thank, as there tend to be. Uh, and uh, we'll start with thanking Kat Pastor. She's there in the studio right now, making it possible to do shows like this one uh, and making it possible for us to work remotely. Uh, so uh, thanks to Kat Pastor. And when I say us working remotely, I'm mainly talking about the aforementioned Betsy Kaplan, senior producer of the Colin McEnroe Show and producer of this episode. As I mentioned before, tomorrow on the Nose, our weekly cultural roundtable, we usually talk about new movies. It was my perhaps misbegotten idea that instead we should watch a movie in which there's a plague after which a sociopathic tyrant rises up uh, and then the restoration of humanity is completely dependent on a recrudescent U.S. mail service. And it's three... <laughs> hours long. It's The Postman starring Kevin Costner. We'll be talking about that and other things tomorrow. All right. So we, we want to end with a happy story. Uh, and this is a happy story. No, not that the last segment was unhappy, but uh, Liz Beard is with us, the director of the North Carolina Aquarium at Pine Knoll Shores. Like a lot of cultural institutions, uh, the aquarium was not taking visitors, which of course meant a diminished flow of what it takes to feed pelicans and alligators uh, and otters. Uh, uh, and so uh, they wondered what to do uh, about that. Let's find out what they actually did decide to do. Uh, so, uh, Liz Baird, welcome to the conversation. Thank you so much, and thank you for inviting me to be a part of the show today. So, uh, so yeah, you guys were like everybody else. So you you can't be open, and I think North Carolina uh, is in kind of a phase two, moving towards a phase three. You're still not open, basically, whatever the phases are. Correct. We're still not open to the public. Of course, we've had staff on site taking care of the animals the entire time, but we are looking forward to getting our guests back. Right. So meanwhile, there's no ticket sales. That means you can't buy otter chow or whatever it is you need. Uh, and so you started looking at, I mean, whose idea was it to start thinking about this waterfall, water, this, uh, you know, thing that people throw coins into? Uh, the credit goes to a staff member. We were actually looking at ways to uh, save money uh, while we've been close to the public. And a suggestion was made to turn off the waterfall. The waterfall doesn't have any live animals living in it. So it was an easy decision to make. Of course, let's stop using that electricity. And then somebody said, hey, maybe we should get the coins out of the bottom. And, and so how long had it been since anybody had looked into those coins? It had been 15 years <laughs> since anybody had looked at those coins. I am fairly new to the aquarium, and somebody asked, Liz, how much money do you think is in there? And I said, well, I don't know, $273? And they laughed and laughed, and then that's when I found out that it hadn't been cleaned out for 15 years. 
So um, just give us kind of a sense of the process, because we really, we really are talking about, I mean, coins are heavy, uh, an individual coin not so heavy, but you start getting them in, in large quantities like you have. How, how much of an effort was it just to get all that stuff into some kind of container where it could be countered, counted or measured? Uh, you are exactly right. Coins are incredibly heavy, heavier than I really understood until we started this project. Uh, the waterfall actually spills into a recess, which is about six feet below the floor. And so we had to climb down in the waterfall. We pumped most of the water out and we scooped up handfuls of gravel and coins and put them in buckets with holes in the bottom so the water would leak out and then lifted them up. Um, we've had several staff that helped spread those coins and rocks out across towels and tarps and you name it, we were spreading coins out and then picking through to get the coins separated from the stones. Um, at the end of that process, we realized we had about 100 gallons of coins because a gallon of coins weighs an awful lot. And that was an easy way to um, to figure out how many coins we were getting out of the waterfall. Right. See, if this were a Disney movie, the animals would have helped with all of it. You know, if it were an animated oh, movie, yes. the pelicans would have run over and started counting them with their beaks and stuff. And, you know, anyway, uh, it's, life, unfortunately, is not a Disney animation. So, um, you know, it wasn't like five days later you knew how much money you had, right? This has been a really lengthy process, even figuring out how, how much of uh, a boon or a help to the aquarium uh, this is going to turn out to be. We are hoping to be able to announce the final results tomorrow morning. I actually just got back from the bank where we have been grateful to have use of their coin counting machine. Um, it The process meant that we had to start by washing all of the coins and many of them had been submerged for so long they were deteriorated. I mean, we actually had coins breaking in half and uh, the coins were encrusted with hard water deposits so we had to clean them and then we built a sifter with a wooden frame and a screen and screen them to get all the little bits of sand and debris off and then had to dry them. And frankly, I can only carry so much weight in my car. So uh, we would load big milk crates full of coins into the back of my car so that I could drive over. And it has taken three days, three full mornings of working with a, a local bank uh, to get all of the coins processed. So, uh, you know, if I were like Mike Wallace or something, I would just try to browbeat the number out of you right now. But I, I can see that tomorrow is the big announcement and that's not going to happen. But we're certainly talking thousands of dollars, right? Yes. Yes, indeed. Um, thousands of dollars. And I was trying to do a little math word problem in my head today, trying to figure out how many coins or how much money was do donated per year if it hadn't been cleaned out in uh, 15 years. So um, it it is a wonderful way to support uh, the aquarium. This will go to the Aquarium Society, which then in turn supports the aquarium, helping us reach our um, conservation and education mission. And it is, um, it's uh, to me, it's a double wish, you know, because some of the kids have pushed back about, you know, you're taking my wish, but I think it means it's a double wish. So they got to make a wish for themselves and a wish for the aquarium. 
Well, plus, if you wish for something 15 years ago, if either you got it or you didn't. I mean, it's <laughs> like, um, so certain wishes have expiration dates, I, I would assume. Yeah. Um, and maybe just give us a sense. I mean, I, I was on the site today. It looks like a wonderful facility and a, a good place to go uh, back when you, when you reopen. So what kind of animals are ultimately going to be the beneficiary of this when things get sorted out? Well, we, we have about 50 habitats on display with animals that can be found from the mountains to the sea of North Carolina. We have a very large ocean habitat that has a replica of a, a submarine that sank off our, sank off our coast. Um, and that habitat includes several uh, species of sharks. They're very large and, of course, um, need to be fed regularly. Um, and we also have um, an amazing collection of birds that are non-releasable and they are injured. And we, we use those to help educate the public about um, our ecosystems and then also learn a little bit about birds in the process. We have three otters. Um, they also are non-releasable. And that's actually one of the favorite exhibits because you can see them swimming underwater as well as playing above above the, the water. Um, and we also have two bald eagles that, yes, they're birds, but they have their own special space. Um, they are both non-releasable. They're both injured um, and have damage to their wings. And they um, draw a lot of attention because nobody really understands how big they are until they get up close to them. True. But we've got okay. a lot of fabulous animals. It does sound that way. Yes, I've actually seen uh, the eagles up close and they're, they are enormous. Liz Beard is the director of the North Carolina Aquarium at Pine Knoll Shores. Thanks very much for your story uh, of coins and how coins came to the rescue, even during <laughs> the time of a coin shortage. Now we know where all the coins are. They're in wishing wells and waterfalls and other kinds of places like that. So uh, thanks to everybody who helped out and to Kat and to Betsy and thanks for listening. And we'll be back tomorrow with The Nose. And you'll find your fortune falling all over town. It 